Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Lyceum, and other platforms. And if you want to help ensure that they keep coming regularly, please go to my Patreon page and become a patron at any level. The link is in the description. I'm almost up to my goal of 75 patrons which should ensure that I can keep producing these on a dependable, regular basis. So I'm very close. I'm up to 72 at the moment. So you may be the one who makes the difference. You may remember a few months ago, also known as one geologic era ago, I posted a lecture about the Dark Age the beginning of the medieval era as the Roman world broke down and adapted. It was based a lot on current scholarship that draws from archaeology and linguistics and all kinds of new fields that haven't been integrated into our narrative of history until recent years. And I said that I would only address certain things, what happened on the European continent in places that had been Roman territory, and that I was not going to talk about the Byzantine Empire or the Islamic world. I would just stick to that early period on the landmass known as Europe. And another element that I left out that I only mentioned but said I would not examine yet was Britain this largest island connected to the European continent, which was an extremely complicated and mysterious place in this era after the end of Roman rule. It's extremely rich, as I said, mysterious. It's the time period in Britain the Arthur legends come from, and I'm hoping that Later down the road, I'll produce a patron-only myth of the month about the Arthur legends, so if you want to hear that, again, please become a patron. But what set Britain apart, or Britannia, or Britannia, as the Romans sometimes called this province on the outer edge of their domains? What was distinctive about it, and how did that shape the complicated events in the Dark Age in Britain? Well, Britain is a particularly specially protected landmass. It is, of course, an island, but even more so than other islands, it is protected by weather. It's very risky and difficult to cross either the North Sea or even the English Channel, where it's narrow. And this has, through the millennia, has really defended Britain from all kinds of invasions that affected the rest of Europe. You can think of Napoleon, the Nazis, and others. And this applied, at least to a great degree, even in the ancient and medieval world. Then even if one does cross the water and reach Britain by sea, its geography is very complicated. There are many different terrains. In general, by and large, the eastern and southern parts of the island are flatter, are more easily traversable. There are more landing points, although there are not necessarily many safe harbors. There are flat landing points. And hence, the southern and eastern parts of Britain more often are the first targets of migrants or invaders. Then, as one moves northward and westward across the island, it becomes more rugged. 
And hence, even when people such as the Romans do successfully invade and conquer large portions of Britain, they have the hardest time exerting control over those more rugged western and northern zones of the country. And that is where you're likely to see more holdouts and survivals of pre-existing societies that are able to evade conquest or domination. So inevitably, you end up with a very complex, layered, and variegated world in Britain with different groups, different classes, and different regional zones that might be alien to one another or that might blend and intercombine over time. And this is something I think you see right from this Dark Age period all the way on up to Britain today. Britain is also a particularly wet climate. It's obviously surrounded by water. It's an island. But it even particularly on the western side has warm water coasts from the North Atlantic drift that generate a lot of moisture. It's a very rainy, misty, foggy country. And this really marks all aspects of the geography and of the lives of people who live there. There is very close access to water basically everywhere in Britain. You can't get very far from the seacoast. There is no large interior zone. You're always somewhere reasonably close to the seashore. And there are also very abundant rivers, streams, lakes, and springs. And hence, there's abundant access and contact with water. And when you look at the settlements, the centers of population, trade, power in Britain, they are always connected to some important body of water. Now, one might ask, of course, if Britain is such a difficult country to access, then why has it not simply been left alone? If we start, say, with the Romans, why were the Romans interested in Britain rather than Scandinavia or some part of the Middle East or the steppes? Why did people keep going back to Britain? And why did they have interest in trading or conquering there? And the main answer is tin. Tin is of great value, especially in societies that rely a lot on bronze. It is the main strengthening material of bronze. And Britain has the best tin deposits, the most accessible tin deposits in Europe. Not only that, but they happen to be found in the southwestern corner of the country, around what we now call Cornwall and Devon. Those are areas where tin mining happened from back in the prehistoric Bronze Age right on up through into recorded history and on up until the last tin mine was closed in 1998. So it's something that has run all through millennia of life in Britain. But as I said, that western side of Britain tends to be more rocky, more rugged, and hence there has always been a kind of challenge for outsiders to try to establish footholds in Britain that then can be used as a base to control that more difficult, more remote western coast in order to control mining, production, and export of tin. So in this way, Britain, although it is more isolated in, in all sorts of ways, it has always been repeatedly drawn into power politics, trade, migration. It has never just enjoyed its splendid isolation like, say, Iceland. 
So this Dark Age period that I want to talk about runs basically from the end of Roman rule in the early 400s up until where I'm going to cut it off, which is the first arrival of the Vikings in the late 700s. So it's about 350 years. It's roughly similar to the period of time I talked about in my Back to the Dark Age lecture back in February. But as I said, it's very complicated and multi-layered. And in order to get a good picture of what we know or what we can guess, what we can suppose about Britain in the Dark Age, we have to first look at the Roman Age, about which we have a, a bit more information and material to draw from. And that really, you know, laid the foundation and the template for the society that would try to survive and adapt after the Romans pulled out. So the Roman rule in Britain lasted from AD 43, during the reign of the Emperor Claudius, up until about 410, or maybe a bit later. So it was a little less than four centuries, you know, a significant stretch of time, although not as long as the Romans ruled other territories like France or Spain. But it seems that when the Romans moved in and occupied Britain in the first century, they were, of course, primarily interested in tin. And they moved in a certain number of troops, some trained officials, procurators, governors. And they also made alliances and built relationships with the existing local elites. And British society over most of the island was Celtic. They spoke Celtic languages. Probably the main one was a Britonic Celtic language, roughly similar to what we now know as Welsh. And there was a blending of gradual acculturation and fusion of Roman and Celtic civilization, of languages, customs, practices. And so we can call society in Roman Britain, Romano-British is the generally accepted term, in a lot of ways similar to what you would see at the same time in Gaul, which we sometimes call Gallo-Roman. The elites about whom we know the most continued to be mostly local and of Celtic origin, but they adopted all kinds of Roman styles. They built themselves Roman villas with fountains and baths and Roman gardens. They helped to build planned towns on street grids like you would see in other parts of the Roman Empire. Probably the most remarkable Roman monument in Britain, which really most vividly illustrates this fusion, is at Bath, a town in western England, which is the longtime site of a bath. That's why it's called Bath. So in Bath, there are hot springs that produce water very rich with iron, and so it can be healing or healthful for certain ailments that cause iron deficiencies. And these iron springs have been a long-time place of travel and pilgrimage. And we can see that going back into the prehistoric centuries, people went there and made offerings, small objects, jewels, pieces of art. And when the Romans occupied Britain, they used Bath as the site for a military town, which was a very common Roman practice on their outer provinces. They would find places 
to resettle uh, military veterans and give them a reward for their service and also build up Roman influence and civilization in the outer provinces. So it was a way to kind of kill two birds with one stone. And they did this at Bath. And at Bath, they built a very large complex of baths, more or less on the Roman template with different hot and cold rooms. And they also built complexes of temples around it to make offerings to spirits and deities associated with the springs. And the main temple was dedicated to a goddess that apparently they called Sulis Minerva. So they were combining together a Celtic deity associated with the spring, Sulis, with the Roman goddess of wisdom, Minerva. So right there you can see the very core concept of the temple complex involved an intentional, a conscious fusing of Roman and Celtic traditions. And if you visit, you can actually see parts of that temple that have been excavated, and you can see the pediment of the temple. And in that pediment, rather than having a cult figure of the goddess Minerva, instead you see a striking and complicated sculpted male face of a a bearded male face with hair and beard flowing in waves as if underwater. And it's reminiscent of Greco-Roman gods of the sea or the ocean like Okeanos. We don't know exactly who or what that figure represents, but it shows that there was some sort of awareness of different, maybe local, gods and spirits connected to water that the Romans were incorporating and maybe, say, co-opting into their own monument. And moreover, this tradition of making pilgrimage and throwing objects into the spring apparently continued. Jewels, figurines, coins, and tokens with wishes or prayers were often dropped into the water. And it seems that this was a continuation of a very ancient European belief that springs were the homes of powerful spirits or deities and that you could gain some sort of power or success or prosperity by making offerings to them. And of course, it it should be obvious that that particular custom has managed to continue down to present day where people still toss coins into fountains, even if they have no idea of that kind of ancient theological background to the practice. And so if you look at Bath, the reason it's so revealing is that you see this almost seamless melding of practices, ideas, customs in a distinctive Roman province. You don't see a segregated colonial society. It is nothing like a modern colonial city where you would see, say, like a Kasba in a North African city where French or European civilization lives and then the local population is kept out in an utterly different and distinct exterior world. Uh, That's not apparently how Roman provinces worked. And in Britain, this process was especially dramatic because Britain was so far from Rome itself. And the, the local people, the local elites, had to really participate actively, it seems, to build up this distinctive Roman provincial world. 
Now, if we take bath to represent the height of what we can see and what we can know about Roman Britain, about Romano-British society, it seems that that world had certain shifting frontiers. It only extended so far. It did reach all the way across to the west, where the tin was located. But as you moved north, its influence apparently diminished and Roman reach was weaker, and we know less directly about life as you go further northward into Britain. You may know that at the height of the empire in the second century, the emperor Hadrian had a wall built across basically what's now northern England, roughly cutting through the very middle of the island. And that wall was not really a defensive wall. You know, walls are not that hard to get over if you want to. But it was more a demarcation line, saying what was at least temporarily the outer limit of Roman control, which Roman legions and fortresses ought to monitor and protect. Beyond Hadrian's Wall, the Romans did sometimes still venture and take control, at least for short periods over certain areas. And there was another wall farther north called the Antonine Wall, which cut basically across what's now the central belt of Scotland around Edinburgh and Glasgow, another very narrow point of the island of Britain. Between those two walls, between Hadrian's Wall around the middle of the island and the Antonine Wall farther up, there was a kind of shifting and ambiguous and disputed frontier area or border area that was maybe quasi-Romanized, where you might find some, some bits of Roman building roads, some awareness of the Latin language, some Roman coins, but it doesn't seem like they ever really set down roots the same way they did in the southern part of the island. So there's this broad kind of middle borderland area, and then above the Antonine Wall, you get areas that the Romans never had any control over, although they did occasionally try, and they sometimes had ambitions at their more optimistic moments. They never really imposed control or had much knowledge of what was up beyond the Antonine Wall in what's now the Scottish Highlands and Islands. It seems that the Romans used different words for the people, for the mostly sort of scattered confederations of tribes in that area that they encountered, but whom they could not conquer. Words that they used include Caledonians and Picts, P-I-C-T. That was not their term for themselves. We know very little about them. We don't know much of their language. It, it was a variety of Celtic language, although we don't know that they necessarily were of Celtic origins. They may have simply picked up that language from people around them. And the Romans called them picked, meaning painted, because apparently they traditionally painted or tattooed their bodies. That was one of their distinctive customs that literally marked them. They also, it seems, were, were warlike, very defensive of their territories, and they often lived in wooden fortresses, especially fortresses on stilts built over waterways. That seems to be their kind of preferred dwelling place. And the Picts were able to hold off any Roman attempt to complete their conquest of the island of Britain, although the Romans certainly never tried as hard because there wasn't anything as desirable to them up there the way there was tin down in the southern and southwestern part of the island. Uh, but 
still, you know, they were Romans. They wanted to eliminate any unstable frontiers that they could. But that one, it seems, continued to move and shift for centuries. So this was more or less the situation in Britain at the height of the Roman Empire, you know, during what later historians would call the, the Pax Romana. But this, of course, did not last forever. It seems that Roman Britain continued to be fairly prosperous, a fairly strong society, right up until the beginning of the 400s. And at some point in the early 400s, it seems that the Roman legions that were stationed at various fortresses around the province pulled out. We don't know exactly when, how, or why this happened. Was it because of a lack of resources, because the Roman Empire was declining at its core and could no longer man and supply these outposts? Possibly. Was it because of a greater need to defend against barbarian incursions in other parts of the empire, like the Danube frontier? Maybe. Maybe that's why they, they moved legions out in order to use them somewhere else. A very likely explanation, actually, is that emperors pulled them out of Britain because they wanted to use them in the frequent civil wars going on within Rome and within Italy, where different generals would assert authority and try to claim the imperial throne and then have to fight one another. This happened repeatedly. You can think, I've, I've mentioned before, Constantine and Maxentius, who had to fight at the Milvian Bridge to determine who would be emperor. And it happens that Constantine actually started out as a Roman general in Britain, and he was proclaimed emperor by his own troops located at York in what's now northern England, before he then rushed down to Italy to try to seize control of the empire. So probably it's that sort of thing that led to the legions eventually being called out of the province into the core of the empire to fight these constant cycles of internecine struggle. Even if we take that to be our best explanation, the precise date is uncertain, but it is usually supposed to be 410. That's the date you'll most often see, and certainly traditional Victorian histories will point to that. And the reason why that's the traditional date is because of one piece of evidence, which is that in that year, the Roman Emperor Honorius issued a rescript, meaning a sort of public open letter, in response to questions or requests that he'd been getting at the imperial palace. And in this rescript of Honorius, it seems that the emperor was trying to deal with and respond to the threat of the Goths. Remember, Alaric, the Gothic general, had led a Gothic army into Italy in that year and later would actually sack Rome, you know, this huge cataclysmic disaster for the imperial capital. And so with that threat approaching, Honorius issued this rescript, which mostly deals with northern Italian cities and what he wanted them to do in order to prepare to block this Gothic invasion. But in the letter, there is also one passage which urges the people of Britannia, putting that in air quotes, Britannia, to take care of their own defense basically to raise their own men and money to defend themselves. So this can be taken basically as a warning. You're not going to get military help from Rome. 
you have to take care of yourselves. Now, for many years, it's traditionally been supposed that this passage refers to Britain. Britannia is almost exactly the same as Britannia, you know, just one vowel sound off. And so it's been supposed that this is an explanation that as the Goths were threatening the core province of Italy, the home province, the emperors pulled the troops out of Britain and basically left them to their own devices. But that's not necessarily completely agreed upon today. There are some scholars who argue that that doesn't make sense. Why would this reference to Britannia be sort of thrown in to this document that's all about Italy. And so some argue that the passage is actually talking about Brutia, which is the name for a small cluster of towns in southern Italy, in what's now Calabria at the southern tip of Italy, and that he's basically saying, we have to worry about this big threat in the north, so you guys way down in the south, you're on your own, we're not worrying about you. And possibly this passage led to a spelling error mistranslation where people later mistook it to be referring to Britain. Putting that objection aside, if we suppose that this does refer to Britain, even then it may have just been a sort of ordinary temporary measure. This may have have been a kind of routine message saying, yeah, you know, we're dealing with problems down here on the continent. You guys out there in Britain, you're all taken care of. We're not sending any big expeditionary force to deal with you because you're, you're not having problems. And as I said before, Britain is unusually naturally protected. So it only makes sense that they would not be the focus at a time like this. But what this illustrates is that there were serious problems. There were conflicts. There was breakdown happening in the core of the empire. And Britain was strangely at this time, not part of it. They just were not an arena where these sorts of invasions were happening, even though you would have already seen Goths, Franks, Vandals moving into Gaul or Germania or all these other Roman provinces on the continent. Britain at this point was still apparently splendidly isolated and secure. And now they simply would have to think about how could they continue their society and continue enjoying the things that they enjoyed and protect them and maintain them as their connection to Rome was severed and as Rome became more and more dysfunctional and ineffective. So if we suppose that the legions did finally withdraw, and it's generally thought from archaeology and other references in surviving documents, it's thought that somewhere between 410 and 430, the existing Roman legions did leave. The period after that is what we call, originally historians called sub-Roman, sort of saying, well, it's Roman-like, but it's not quite as nice or quite as good. (laughs) And this is because archaeologists found art and pottery and such and said, well, these things still are in the Roman style, but they're not quite as fine. The materials aren't quite as good as you would have seen in the Roman era. So they called it sub-Roman. The more politically correct term today is simply post-Roman. But from what we can guess, it does seem that there was a great deal of continuity in this initial very mysterious and you might say dark period in the four and five hundreds. The fortresses, for instance, along Hadrian's Wall continued to be manned and occupied. They were not simply abandoned. Someone was still holding the line or maybe they were reorienting somewhat and trying to 
protect and control surrounding territory rather than simply hold the line between Roman to the south and barbarian to the north. And there's one example at one fort on Hadrian's Wall where not only did the stone fortress remain, but also a new big timber structure was built right alongside the existing stone fort. So somebody was building something new, maybe for new purposes. Maybe new people were going there for safety and wanted to live there. Or maybe they needed to self-organize in that area, and so they needed a large meeting space rather than simply relying on officials and orders from Rome. Uh, Whatever it was, there was a kind of gradual adaptation. Things were not simply abandoned or disappeared. They were adapted and new things were built on their foundations. It seems that many military bands, what might have been sort of local auxiliaries to the legions, a lot of them stayed, and their leaders continued to collect money. And we can theorize that people who had previously paid Roman taxes now instead simply paid similar fees as a sort of protection racket to local warriors, strongmen, who could keep some degree of security. So so there was a localization, a fragmentation, but there was not simply a fall into chaos or abandonment. It's also theorized that some of the command positions, which might have been held by appointed Roman soldiers and officers, that some of those shifted over and became hereditary. Instead of being able to draw on a trained, qualified Roman imperial elite. Instead, people had to find some way of maintaining local leadership drawn from whatever tribal or regional elite they had. And it does seem from archaeology that in most parts of Britain, occupation simply continued. Where there was farming, it continued. Where there were villages or even sizable towns, they remained. But in some outlying fringe areas, there was a retreat. Some cultivated regions, especially in those more rugged western northern parts, it seems that people did withdraw. They maybe clustered closer together to secure fortresses or towns. And some farmland did return to forest, but not a whole lot. It was not a tremendous change. And in some places, abandoned sites were reoccupied, particularly if you look around Britain, it's dotted with Iron Age hill forts, hills that were built up, improved with earthworks, flattened tops that could be the sites of palisaded towns or forts. Some of these places were actually reoccupied after the Romans withdrew. And that too maybe represents a degree not not just of breakdown, but of localization, of people having to make decisions and take actions on a small local scale to reimpose security. A lot of what we might call Roman culture, high learning, high art, did continue in some form. And in particular, we know that there continued to be a significant elite well-versed in Latin, And there are inscriptions that have been found all over what's now England. Gravestones, monuments, cornerstones of buildings and foundations that have inscriptions written in a very erudite, metrical Latin verse. And in fact, it seems as if there was a class of people in Britain who really continued very sophisticated classical Latin more than in the provinces on the European continent, 
And that can seem strange, considering that there were fewer people there of Roman extraction. It was Roman territory for a shorter time. But the everyday spoken language in Britain, for the most part, was Celtic, Welsh or Britannic forms of Celtic. It was not Latin. And so that means when someone learned Latin in Britain, they might have been taught by a tutor or gone to a monastery school. And when they learned Latin, they were learning it by the book. They were learning it as a literate written language, and they were learning it from classic, classical sources. Whereas on the continent, the everyday spoken language of the street was vulgar Latin. It was a sort of, uh, you know, it was a kind of popular Latin dialect that also evolved and changed over time until it morphed into the Romance languages, into early French, Spanish, Italian, etc. So people on the continent were sort of picking up vulgar Latin and experimenting with it, whereas in Britain they were adhering to a more traditional literate standard of Latin, and that's reflected in these inscriptions. Meanwhile, the large mass of people who were speaking Celtic languages also began to develop their own literature of a sort, and this is the time period in probably the 500s, when the earliest stories of King Arthur started to develop, and they were then passed down for centuries later, mainly in Welsh and in Breton, when Welsh-speaking people and Cornish-speaking people from Western Britain migrated out and crossed down into Brittany in France. The stories and legends were brought there. Arthur himself, of course, is very mysterious, and we cannot know for certain whether there was a real King Arthur, or if any other characters in the Arthur cycle are real people. But it's been theorized by many scholars that there was some real prototype that inspired the story. And if there was a real Arthur, we can suppose very likely he was a leader, maybe a general or a chieftain, who tried to hold together Romano-British society over a larger area in the absence of these protective Roman legions and was trying perhaps to keep the customs and norms of Romano-British society going and to stave off breakdown and fragmentation. That is a pretty good guess that a lot of scholars would support, but as I said, it's very unclear, and I hope to discuss this later and really get into where the Arthur story came from, where the Knights of the Round Table came from, and what they mean and what they represent in the medieval world. Now, some of you may know that later legends of Arthur claim that he was born at Tintagel, on the coast of Cornwall at that southwestern corner of Britain. And, of course, you know, we can't know whether that's true or not. It's just one of many sites around the island that have been connected or associated with Arthur at different times. But we can say that Tintagel, this kind of fortified village outpost in Cornwall, was important because it was a site of contact and trade with the continent, particularly the export of tin. Right. So again, tin keeps Britain uh, looped in and connected to this wider European world. That's a bit of what we can say about sub-Roman Britain in the wake of the Roman withdrawal. And 
we can't know what would have happened or what sort of society might have emerged if that gradual evolution and adaptation had continued. But it was suddenly changed and reoriented, you could say, with another arrival, and that is of the Anglo-Saxons. So this is how this world of Britain, Romano-British society, eventually started to change into what we now call England. So probably a lot of you have heard that in this wake of the Roman withdrawal, in this sort of power vacuum, the Anglo-Saxons invaded across the sea from Northern Europe into Britain. And our basic story of the Anglo-Saxon invasion comes from several fairly early sources, starting within a couple hundred years after the supposed event. And the story of the invasion is told, for one thing, in the Chronicles of Gildas, who was a very learned and eloquent Romano-British writer who lived in Britain in the mid-500s who was a Christian, and whose works in Latin were very widely known, copied, and read. There's evidence that even the Pope in Rome read the writings of Gildas. And Gildas describes the Angles and Saxons, these warlike Germanic tribesmen, bursting out of their home in Europe like cubs coming out of a lion's den, crossing into Britain and laying waste to the country. From very early on, we hear of of the Anglo-Saxons as these kind of fearsome conquerors showing up in their ships. A later chronicler named Bede, who was a monk and was of himself Anglo-Saxon ancestry, he also wrote his ecclesiastical history of the English people in probably the late 600s, maybe around the year 700. So he was a monk at Jero, a monastery up in the northeastern corner of the country, right by what's now Newcastle and Durham. And he also told a more detailed story of the beginning of this Anglo-Saxon invasion, and also some aspects of it are described in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is this kind of accumulated list of events and anecdotes from the Anglo-Saxons themselves, that were collected and then copied and over the years in various manuscripts in the Middle Ages. So Gildas Bede and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle all tell us certain basic things about the sudden arrival of the Anglo-Saxons. And the story that they tell is more or less like this. Around the year 430, Britons in the island found that they needed security in the absence of the Roman troops, and so they called in mercenaries, which was a very normal, common thing to do. Many rulers, towns, leaders all around Europe did this as the Roman Empire broke down. They brought in Germanic mercenaries, and in particular, British leaders called on two brothers called Hengist and Horsa, warrior chieftains from somewhere around what's now Germany or Denmark. And they brought in boatloads of their warrior compatriots and kinsmen across the sea and settled as defenders in eastern and southern Britain. They then began to demand more power, tribute, land. And when they were not satisfied, they rebelled, staged basically a coup, seized control of most of the country, and then began creating small kingdoms. 
So this is the basic story that you hear, which runs supposedly in the Chronicle from about 430 to about 460 or so, of how these Anglo-Saxons arrived and how they ended up taking power and control of the country. If you talk to current scholars, there is no consensus at all that anything like this happened or that we can even call the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons an invasion. There is a growing and increasingly predominant school of thought now among scholars of Dark Age Britain and Sub-Roman Britain that the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons was much more slow and gradual, more peaceable, and that it was more of really just a migration and not a hostile invasion or takeover. This is based particularly a lot on archaeology. So again, the same sort of pattern is happening that I talked about on the European continent, where people are finding that these supposed barbarian invasions were actually not nearly as swift or as violent or destructive as they're described in the Chronicles. What do we know about the appearance of Anglo-Saxons based on archaeology? Well, we do see that new forms of metalworking new artistic styles, and particularly the practice of large burials with animals and artwork and grave goods, this started to show up in Britain in the 400s and increasingly in the 500s. There are some very famous examples, such as the Tremendous Horde at Sutton Hoo in southeastern England, which seems to date probably from the 500s, and it's supposed that some kind of Anglo-Saxon king or chieftain might have been the honoree of this massive burial at Sutton Hoo, but we don't know. It does seem as if the people who practiced these burials were warlike, or at least embraced and celebrated symbols of war power, like horses, weapons, and boats. And at Sutton Hoo, in fact, some of the greatest items were actually buried in an entire intact boat, much like you would see the Vikings do in Scandinavia. However, archaeologists caution that this does not necessarily mean that there was a hostile invasion or takeover. There is no evidence of battles. There is no evidence of mass graves. There is no evidence of towns destroyed, burned, buried. It's just not there. And the appearance of these new styles and practices appear to have been very gradual, almost as if people were developing them and adopting them in time not as if they suddenly appeared with a massive invasion of new people from across the sea. And genetics have been used in this debate, but it's very ambiguous and dicey exactly what you can draw from genetics. When one recovers genetic material from the people buried in these new ritual burials, it seems as if they were mostly more related to Celtic people, Welsh or Irish people, than they are to Germanic peoples like Germans or Scandinavians. And this suggests that maybe the people who adopted this practice were simply local elites who were imitating styles or ideas that were coming from migrants moving across the sea. They were not the invaders themselves, at least not all the time. So how did this change or displacement or migration happen? Well, it seems likely that several groups from the mainland. Several Germanic groups came over and started to settle and create kind of colonies or outposts in Britain very slowly and gradually over the course of several hundred years. And these included Angles, who were from what's now basically the northern tip of Germany along the Baltic and North Sea. Saxons, who were a closely related group from maybe a bit further south in what's now Germany. 
Jutes, who are a very mysterious and obscure group, probably mostly from what's now Denmark, and also Frisians, another group that we don't hear about as much, but that's increasingly becoming part of the conversation, who were tribes from outlying islands of what's now the Netherlands. And they're very important, and I'll, I'll mention later why they're coming into the picture. So all of these tribes, Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Frisians, it seems made their way over, probably in small fits and starts over many years. And it may have actually begun during the Roman era. This may not have been a wave that started after the Roman withdrawal. It might have already been going on. And in fact, if you look at Roman ruins and remains in Britain, one thing you'll find is a long string of fortresses along the southeastern coast of England, on that most vulnerable, kind of flat, low-lying coastline closest to Europe. They built a string of fortresses, and there are documents that show that sometimes the Romans referred to this stretch of coast as the Saxon coast. And traditionally, a lot of scholars thought, well, they called it the Saxon coast because sometimes Saxon raiders or pirates would come over and attack, and they built these fortresses to defend against them, and that's why they call it the Saxon coast. But obviously, that's highly unusual for someone to name a place after some alien population that threatens it or occasionally raids it. And rather more currently scholars are thinking that it was called the Saxon coast because there were Saxons living there. That's the much more common normal human habit to call a place after the people who live there. So there may have already been Saxons on the coast of Roman Britain who in some way managed trade and travel back and forth to the continent. And these fortresses were designed more as trading posts to protect goods as they were moved in this traffic. And probably this gradual migration and intermixing of Germanic tribes into Roman Britain then continued or maybe accelerated after the Romans withdrew. And then also if we look at the language, one of the reasons why this notion of a massive uh, overpowering Anglo-Saxon conquest has survived is because we know that in later centuries, most of Britain began speaking a Germanic language and that this displaced and replaced the Celtic languages. And if you look at a map today, of course, you see this overwhelming dominance of English, the name of which comes from the Angles, and only small remaining pockets of Welsh in the West, Scottish Gaelic in the North, and so on. And so that can reinforce this idea that there was a massive invasion and that the Anglo-Saxons either seized all the territory or imposed their rule over it. But in fact, linguists now tend to think there was more of a gradual replacement, that people slowly moved from one language to another, and that the new language that people took up was actually more Frisian than Anglo-Saxon. Even if most of the people who came into Britain were Angles and Saxons, the, the language that took over was actually much closer to Frisian, and Frisian is still spoken on those outlying islands of the Netherlands. You can still hear it today, and it is the most closely related language to English. It's almost understandable to English speakers, and it has the most common vocabulary and phraseology no one, none of these chroniclers ever said, oh my God, we were invaded by a mass of Frisians. 
The Frisians are just mentioned occasionally in passing as among these groups and tribes. And so the transition to the new language probably was not, it did not happen because someone subjugated the country by force and said you're not allowed to speak Welsh or Britannic. Rather, it was an acculturation and adaptation. For whatever reason, it was an easy language to learn. It was easy to use, to communicate between groups. And so it took over, little by little, in a gradual and peaceable way. And moreover, as some linguists have pointed out, the previous existing Celtic languages didn't just disappear. They were not wiped out. But rather, there are aspects of Celtic syntax like the use of connecting verbs, using do when you ask a question, like do you go to the store instead of go you to the store. There are these idiosyncrasies in the English language that probably carried over from the Celtic languages, and that would have happened because little by little over time, people who knew the Celtic languages also learned Anglo-Saxon, and they brought some of their habits over into the new language. So there's a melding and hybridity even there, even in the development of English. There are all these reasons to suppose that this was not simply a matter of bloodthirsty barbarians showing up, whacking all these poor, defenseless Romano-Britons and imposing a new domination. It was something much more complicated and that involved very little warfare or maybe only occasional warfare. And when it did break out, it was probably just as much among fellow Germanic tribes or among fellow Celto-Romans as much as it was between the two sides. It was not a matter of one sort of race or nation displacing another. Now, regardless of all that, if we put this whole question of the so-called supposed invasion aside, what we do know is that gradually in the five and six hundreds, a series of somewhat unified, somewhat stable kingdoms did emerge, each with its own ruling elite and each with its own capital. And so this period, after about 600 or so, is sometimes called the heptarchy. That's the sort of fancy Latinate word, just meaning rule of seven. It was not ruled by seven guys. It was seven kingdoms that occupied basically more or less what's now England and up northward into the borderlands beyond Hadrian's Wall into what's now Scotland. And these seven kingdoms comprised three Angle kingdoms to the north, three Saxon kingdoms to the south, and one Jute kingdom. So the three Angle kingdoms were Northumbria, Mercia, and East Anglia, basically with Northumbria up in, in the northeast, what's now Yorkshire, and extending up into Scotland, up to basically what's now Edinburgh. Mercia in the interior, and East Anglia on the eastern coast on the North Sea. And then in the south, you had three Saxon kingdoms, Essex, Sussex, and Wessex, which simply meant Eastern Saxons, Southern Saxons, and Western Saxons. And then one Jute kingdom at Kent down there in the far southeastern corner. The Jutes, as I said, are probably the most mysterious, the most obscure of them all, but they, they did manage to get a foothold in that one southeastern part of Britain. So these various kingdoms probably formed bit by bit as people made alliances, joined together into larger cooperative bands in order to achieve security, in order to create a tax base, to be able to build, protect towns. And the people who rose to the top, these sort of chieftains who rose to the top of these groups, 
eventually came to claim the title of king. And if this is true, if this was the sort of gradual process of migration, adaptation, consolidation that led to these seven kingdoms, why then has it been so misrepresented? You might ask, why do our chronicles and early documents not describe it this way at all? Well, there are several reasons probably why this would happen. If we start with Gildas, our sort of first written account of the Anglo-Saxon invasion, Gildas was a Christian, and he was describing the arrival of Anglo-Saxons, who overwhelmingly were pagan. And naturally, he looked down on them. He wanted to present them as violent, as intruders and invaders. And the Anglo-Saxon migration is part of why Gildas eventually, it seems, gave up on Britain and migrated down to Brittany on the continent because he saw these Anglo-Saxons who were taking over or who had inordinate power and influence as barbarians. And then from about 100 or so years later, we get the account from Bede in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People. And Bede himself is Anglo-Saxon by extraction, but he also is a Christian and a monk. He was born and raised on the grounds of Jero Monastery in the Northeast in Northumberland. He does not necessarily want to present the Anglo-Saxons as simply bloodthirsty foreign invaders, but he does want to emphasize that they were barbaric and uncivilized before they were converted to Christianity. He really emphasizes the feat and the importance of that conversion. That's the main miracle he's describing in his whole chronicle. And so he, too, perpetuates this notion that they were kind of dangerous and bloodthirsty and needed to be civilized after coming into Britain. Then you might ask, well, what about these leaders, these kings? Why would they claim to be descended from these foreign uh, invaders and usurpers? Well, in a way, that too could serve their elite propaganda. When new kingdoms form, you have to have some reason, some explanation of why you ought to be a ruler and you should be respected. And often people would claim descent from gods or from heroes well, with the story of the invasion, you could conveniently say, well, I'm descended from a line of kings that came from across the sea, and we've just always been kings. It goes back into the mists of time, and we simply transferred that power and authority from there to here, and we have the right of conquest. We came in, we were stronger, we were fiercer, we beat you. And so a story that could be negative when it's told by a Christian writer or a monk could be seen in a positive if you were a noble lord or a king or a ruler to say this is why we have this special authority. So it seems that for all these reasons, this idea of the violent Anglo-Saxon invasion was built up and developed and perpetuated and is really only being questioned in recent years. If we can say that is roughly what we think happened that led to the creation of these seven kingdoms in the Dark Age, how did society work? What can we know? What can we guess about how people lived? These new kingdoms were largely built and organized around Germanic bands, a lot like I described before in my lecture on Back to the Dark Age. And these bands, their sort of social world centered on a chieftain's great hall, which was usually a big timber structure with a hearth in the center where the leaders of a tribe could meet and also where people could socialize and hold ceremonies, festivities. 
These chieftains and warriors would sometimes hold formal meetings around the hearth, like is described later in the Epic of Beowulf. And beyond the hall, you would then have small villages and scattered sort of clusters of family farms and ultimately households with their own little territories and holdings. And these farming households were organized into groups called hundreds. So you just you just sort of stake out a territory and say there are roughly about 100 households here. And that was called a hundred. And these hundreds would basically manage justice within their own limited realms. So they'd be able to arrest and imprison people, make their own laws and ordinances, manage communal resources. And when someone was suspected or accused of breaking a law, they would be put on trial by the hundred. A sort of gathering or court would be held, sometimes out in the open, especially on hilltops. Evidence, testimony might be heard. And if a case was considered very ambiguous, uncertain, there might also be trials then by ordeal, where someone would have to go through some sort of torture and see whether they survived as a way of testing their guilt or innocence. And all of these things then made their way into English medieval law and government. So those are some things we can say about the kind of reorganization of society along Anglo-Saxon lines in this zone of the Seven Kingdoms. What about beyond that, if we go north into that sort of frontier and borderland area? Well, it seems that that area in the north was divided and continued to be divided. And you tended to have Anglo-Saxons, especially Northumbrians, controlling the eastern side, while Celts continued to control the western side. And there was a Celtic-ruled kingdom called Strathclyde, which ran from what's now kind of the southwestern corner of Scotland, just below Glasgow, down along the northwestern coast of England, around what's now Lancashire, and eventually reached down to Wales. And there continued to be small, independent Celtic chiefdoms and confederations in Wales. So you have this large, continuing Celtic-dominated zone around the northwest, stretching through what's now parts of Scotland, England, and Wales, that the Anglo-Saxons never conquered and just kind of usually coexisted with in, a, you might say, a kind of uneasy Cold War. Now, beyond that, if we go north of the Antonine Wall, we see the Picts continuing to hold on in the east and becoming somewhat more centralized under sort of premier chieftains who could be called kings, loosely speaking. And this realm was sometimes called Pictland. That's, that's what we call it historically now. You get a somewhat more unified, concerted Pictish territory. But the Picts did not control all of what's now Scotland. As I said, there was Strathclyde, and then above Strathclyde, along the islands and the outer edge, the western edge of the highlands, that sort of most rugged territory, which can only really be accessed by water, there you get another invasion. So at about the same time that Anglo-Saxons are migrating or invading along the east, in the far northwestern reaches, you get another invasion coming across gradually by sea, and that's of Irish Celts. And they set up small chiefdoms and a sort of loosely organized kingdom, which was called Dalriada. 
Much like in the middle frontier zone, you get Northumbria, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom in the east, and Strathclyde in the west. Up in the highlands, you get Pictland in the east and Dalrieda in the west. And there's sort of ongoing feuding and intermittent warfare and contestation. But the Picts, you could say, were basically a land-based power. If they had access to a territory by land, they could control it. Dalrieda was a sea kingdom, and it brought in all kinds of things like the Gaelic language that we now associate with Scotland. They were actually brought across the sea by these Gaels from Ireland. So that gives us just a basic sort of overview of the political map of Britain. Who had power and authority in Britain at this time? Meanwhile, a lot of what we know from the surviving records and descriptions of this era, a lot of what we know is really about what people believed and contention over how to understand the world, whom to worship, and how. And there was a constant back-and-forth struggle, not just between Anglo-Saxons and Celts, which has been overly exaggerated. There was a kind of ideological and spiritual struggle between Christianity and other beliefs. So how did this struggle to Christianize Britain go, and who was waging this battle? Well, it seems that in the Roman era, in Roman Britain, Christianity did initially cross in and gain a certain following and foothold. Naturally, for more than 100 years, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire, or an official religion of the empire. So it does seem that Christianity made its way in, and we can find Christian gathering places and pieces of art from Roman Britain. But the Christianity that made its way into Roman Britain included many modes of thought that did not take hold and survive and become popular on the continent. For instance, some Christians in Britain were Gnostic, meaning they subscribed to this whole alternative version of Christianity which centers on knowledge versus ignorance, light versus darkness, and spirit versus body, in which teaches that the body is evil, it was created by a demon, and that the spirit must escape from it. These are teachings that are, are very much at odds with what we now know as orthodox, mainstream, Nicene Christianity, and which were gradually suppressed in the Latin-speaking world. Also, it seems, even among those Christians in Britain who were closer to the sort of orthodox consensus that you would find in Rome, many of them were Pelagian. They subscribed to the teachings about salvation and sin that were put forward by a theologian named Pelagius, who most likely was from Britain himself. His name, Pelagius, probably is a translation of his real given name, which very likely would have been Morgan, a Celtic British name meaning seaborn. So Pelagius believed in free will is a phrase that's easy to misunderstand. It didn't mean he thought people should do what they want. Rather, he meant that all people have ultimate control over their actions and hence have control over whether they are saved or damned. And so he came into a bitter conflict and debate with Augustine, the major leading light theologian of the 400s, who argued for predestination, that people do not have control over their actions. Everything is ultimately predestined by God, who is all-knowing and all-powerful. And your actions are always 
determined to some degree or defined by your original sin, the fact that you have an inborn sinful nature that you can never totally overcome and you need God's grace to sort of cancel your original sin and make it possible for you to be saved. So Pelagius denied all of this. He rejected original sin and he was perfectionist. He believed that people could choose not to sin and they could make themselves perfect. He himself lived a very ascetic lifestyle, limiting his his food, his clothing, sex, and he argued that everyone really could be saintly. There was no need for God's grace to save you. You had the ability to save yourself. And his teachings and his ideas most likely got a bigger audience and following in Britain than anywhere else in the Roman world. And so the Christianity that existed in Roman Britain was very, very questionable from the point of view of conventional Orthodox Christians from Italy or from parts of Europe closer to Rome. And... Once the Romans withdrew, it's possible that there was some retreat away from Christianity, as happened in many outer provinces, that maybe some people started to move back more towards Celtic gods and spirits and those sorts of rituals that they knew. But Christianity did not go away. There was a significant Christian church that persisted on into the 5th, 6th centuries, and it was probably very heterodox and very dubious from the point of view of many other Christians. So that's the basic situation we can describe, say, in the 400s. And then in the 500s, we have a society that's very complex, very mixed. Pagan, Celtic, and Germanic gods and customs are very common. So missionaries start to show up who look at Britain as a missionary field, who see it as largely pagan, And even those Christians that are there are like not real, (laughs) are not good pre-approved Christians. And so missionary efforts start to come in to Britain from two different directions. There's first a reintroduction of Christianity in the north brought in by those Irish Gaelic migrants coming into Dalriada. And the major leader of this new Irish missionism was St. Columba, who was Irish-born and who reportedly led a team of 12 monks across the sea and landed and was granted a little island in that coastal kingdom of Dalriada, an island called Iona. And he founded an abbey there in 563, which he then used as the great headquarters, almost like a, a second Rome a headquarters for the spread and promotion of Christianity in Britain. And the form of Christianity that they practiced is what we now call Celtic Christianity. It was centered very much on monasteries. It was led by monks and abbots. Those monasteries tended to be loosely organized. They often broke up and spread out bring their beliefs and practices and preach out in far-flung places, and all sorts of things, dating, ritual, liturgy, were different. Even the tonsure that these monks used, the way they cut their hair to mark themselves out as monks, was totally different from the tonsure of monks back in Italy or France. So they were creating a base for this Celtic Christianity to then move and propagate Columba himself fairly quickly crossed over eastward through the mountains into Pictland, 
into this area that was so little known. And in fact, a lot of what we know or can guess about the Picts actually just comes from these accounts written by monks about Columbus' travels. And he pursued conversion. He especially went for the leaders, the rulers, the chieftains. He reportedly performed miracles and feats in order to impress the leaders and convince them to convert. And also at the same time, he paid attention to the very bottom of society. Pictland had many slaves, as many ancient societies did. They had a class of slaves, and a lot of those slaves were Gaels and Celts that had been captured in these conflicts with Dalrida. And Columba apparently targeted these people and pressured, exhorted slave masters to free these slaves, sometimes sold items to buy freedom for slaves, and in that way gained access to this population of people who knew his language and customs and whom he could quickly and easily convert and create a sort of army of lower-class Christians. And from these different bases, at the top of society among the rulers and among slaves and ex-slaves, he slowly infiltrated and spread Christianity. Iona itself became a great center of art and learning. A lot of the most talented writers, translators, artists, craftsmen gathered at Iona. They eventually probably created what we know as the Book of Kells, the most magnificent, elaborate work of manuscript illumination from the Dark Age. His later successors, abbots, wrote chronicles, histories, works of philosophy, including A Life of Columba, which tells us some of what we know about Columba's life and career, and also a book called On Holy Places, which was the first, you might say, the first surviving travel guide for people who are going abroad including to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and of the people, the languages, the places. It's some of the earliest, I believe the earliest drawings of several of the Christian churches in Palestine that survive are from this book on holy places from Iona. And it constantly sent out missionaries, right, to go out and create more monasteries, more abbeys, sort of colonies from Iona further south and east across into Pictland, down into Northumbria, Strathclyde. And this Celtic Christianity, little by little, percolated down into Britain. Now, meanwhile, following very soon on the heels, uh, you know, Columba founded Iona's Abbey in 563. And then not long after that, in the 590s, other missionaries began to come up into Britain from the south and evangelize northward. So there's sort of a pincer attack coming from two different directions. And probably part of why this happened is that the Pope, Gregory, learned that Celtic Christianity was getting more and more of a foothold in Britain. And he wanted to see what he considered to be correct Latin Christi Christianity make its way in as a counterbalance. So he dispatched in 596 a missionary named Augustine, no relation to Augustine of Hippo, and he landed at Kent in 597 and made contact with the Jute rulers of Kent and then from there used that as a base to try to spread Latin Christianity up among the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And Initially, he made pretty good progress, but then it got more hairy and difficult as time went on. But basically, it seems that by the time Augustine got to Kent in 597, 
there were already changes starting to happen within Anglo-Saxon pagan beliefs, probably influenced by the Christianity coming down from the north. And it seems that they were becoming more kind of monotheistic almost, or at least monolatrous. And they were starting to worship particularly the god Woden as the single central god. Some apparently were swearing off worship of any other gods. And they were starting to do some things more like Christians, like build temples on plans facing towards an altar, much like a church. The Anglo-Saxon people at this time were still overwhelmingly pagan, but they were maybe being more primed as they became more familiar with Christianity. And when Augustine arrives, he is able to meet with the king of Kent named Ethelbert, and fairly fast he persuades Ethelbert to convert. Apparently his wife was already Christian. She was from the continent, was already Christian. So this is a classic missionary tactic. Go for a leader who already has Christians in their family and can be influenced. And conversion seems to have happened fairly quickly in Kent, centered particularly on the town of Canterbury, which is where Augustine built the first church, and it, it's still there, this, this earliest church in southern England. From there, he then ventured northward into Essex and went to the capital of the kingdom of Essex at London and founded a church at St. Paul's. Uh, of course, his St. Paul's doesn't exist, but there is St. Paul's Cathedral on that site still there in London. And the Latin Christianity that he was spreading, although it did include abbeys and monasteries, it was not so much centered on them. The main leaders were not abbots. Rather, the leaders were priests and especially bishops. And so he was concerned with building up parish churches and cathedrals with bishops, and hence the biggest, most important cathedrals in England at Canterbury and St. Paul's at London are traced back to Augustine. But his conversion of Essex failed. After the king died, he was replaced by princes who rejected Christianity, and it seems that a lot of people pretty quickly fell back. And so it turned out to be a much more long, difficult back-and-forth struggle to get those Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to convert. Another important site of this struggle turned out also to be Northumbria. So Northumbria, as I said, is this Anglo-Saxon, mainly Angle kingdom, in the northeast, and it's on this kind of edge between the Pictic and Celtic world to the north and the Anglo-Saxon world to the south, and they were getting messages and information from both directions about Christianity, and there was increasing curiosity and interest among the leaders of Northumbria about whether it might be worth it to become Christian and hence tap into these growing networks of power and prestige in Christian Britain. And Bede, in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People, talks about a discussion that supposedly happened in Northumbria under King Edwin in the year 627. And this passage is probably the most famous, most striking passage from all of Bede's writings. He describes the leading nobles coming together in the king's hall, as you would do in an Anglo-Saxon society, right? coming together in the royal hall and having a meeting and a discussion and a debate. And supposedly one of the leading nobles stood up and said, quote, The present life of man upon earth, O king, 
seems to me in comparison with that time which is unknown to us, like the swift flight of a sparrow through the mead hall, where you sit at supper in winter, with your eldermen and thanes, while the fire blazes in the midst, and the hall is warmed, but the wintry storms of rain or snow are raging abroad. The sparrow, flying in at one door and immediately out at another, whilst he is within, is safe from the wintry tempest. But after a short space of fair weather, he immediately vanishes out of your sight, passing from winter to winter again. So this life of man appears for a little while, but of what is to follow or what went before, we know nothing at all. And this nobleman then concludes by saying, if Christianity can tell us something, if it can illuminate something about where we came from before birth or where we are going after death, then it is worth it to embrace it. It seems, if this story is true, it seems that this speaker who gave this very vivid, memorable speech didn't win the debate (laughs) because conversion did not happen yet in Northumbria. Or if he did, the decision didn't stick. The conversion did not stick for some time. But it does seem that this interest in the life beyond, what is the afterlife, drew people and spread curiosity about Christianity. So as I said, conversion didn't happen yet in Northumbria. But several years later, in 634, a new king came to the throne, King Oswald. And Oswald had been raised at Iona. He was himself a Christian, and he had been raised and educated at Iona, and he believed deeply in that way of life. And he then tried to Christianize the kingdom, and he brought in an abbot named Aidan from Ireland to try to build up a church in Northumbria. But Aidan met consistent heavy opposition. It was a real political and social battle. His main accomplishment was that he created another abbey at Lindisfarne on an island called Holy Island, an island sort of on a tidal inlet. And he remained there, and he also pursued slave emancipation, getting contact with slaves and gaining them freedom by one means or another, and then using them as converts to build up this new church. So in Northumbria, we can see again and even more clearly Christianity making its way to the top of society the ruling elites, and the bottom, the enslaved or or formerly enslaved class. And then it seems that little by little percolated through the middle of society by preaching, by propaganda, by the creation of art and buildings, and it had certain appeals, the ceremonies, marking events, uh, baptisms, weddings, and the preaching of an afterlife, and particularly a more egalitarian vision of the afterlife, the notion that all are ultimately spiritually equal, as opposed to previous pagan beliefs, which emphasize that the social hierarchies and orders of this world will be recreated in the future world. Lords will still be lords and their servants will still be servants. That was replaced by this more egalitarian doctrine, which of course did not hold that there couldn't be lords or there couldn't be kings, but just that in the spiritual, in the eternal realm, everyone would be equal. And what sort of effects did this Christianity have, you know, beyond these life ceremonies and this more spiritual egalitarianism? Well, it seems that the missionaries had a real struggle, even after converting much of the population to Christianity and baptizing them. There was still a struggle to change 
life habits and mores. And there were many sermons apparently exhorting people to stop their temporary, casual relationships, sexual or romantic relationships, against divorce and against polygamy. All of these things apparently went on. People would kind of informally take up with lovers, maybe take multiple wives, especially if they were rich or powerful. And there was a very slow, year-by-year crackdown to try to get people to adhere to the Christian model of marriage and family. Christianity also helped give rise to much more literacy, and writing became more and more commonly used. A later King Wilfred of York in the late 600s created the first written law codes in Britain and began the habit of creating written charters and deeds and wills and these sorts of documents to consistently lay out and avoid disputes about these legal relationships, where previously this all would have been worked out orally Wilfred of York himself had been educated at Lindisfarne. Much as his forebears had been educated and raised at Iona, he was a product of Lindisfarne, and and he had also traveled to Rome and, and the continent and was probably multilingual. And this move towards literacy was supported by a new growing literate elite, which was mainly clergy, you know, monks and priests, but also others. Landholders, nobles could also become literate. But there was a problem Wilfred of York, as I mentioned, had been to Rome, and he was very well versed in Latin, and he saw himself as part of this larger Latin Christian world. And he got caught in the middle of a kind of cold war between two different churches and two different forms of Christianity led by two different forms of monasticism, the Celtic and the Latin, or Roman. And these collided right in his kingdom in what's now northern England. And there was this ongoing contest for power and influence between the different monasteries, the different priests. The conflict came to a head in the year 663 when King Oswiu of Northumbria, who had been schooled at Iona, reportedly got into a fight with his wife, who was from Kent. So Oswiu was committed to the northern Celtic form of Christianity. His wife was raised in the Roman form. And apparently they could get along, but something caused a conflict, the dating of Easter. These two different churches calculated the date of Easter in two different ways. And this meant that they calculated all the different holidays and festivals differently. They were out of sync with one another, and it meant that they believed Lent ended at different times. And so these restrictions about eating meat, having sex, ended for different people at different moments, depending on whether they thought it was Easter yet. And at one point, the king reportedly, this might be true or it might just be a nice story, he was using the Celtic system and believed that Lent was finished and was ready to have sex with his wife again. But she continued to refuse. So you can maybe imagine the squabble in the royal bedroom. And it basically forced King Oswiu to have to somehow resolve this discrepancy. And so the following year in 664, he called a synod, which was held at the monastery of Whitby, which is on the coast of what's now North Yorkshire. 
And it was presided over by the abbess of Whitby, Hilda, who had founded the monastery years earlier and was herself an Anglo-Saxon princess from a, from a royal family, but had become a nun and an abbess. And so she presided over this synod, which was very contentious, and the king ultimately ruled in favor of the Roman side. This might be a bit surprising considering that was not his initial position, but it seems that he saw the Roman church as representing the wider world, the world of trade and diplomacy and learning that he wanted Northumbria to be part of. And this was really a critical domino falling, you could say, in favor of the Roman church and the Roman world, and which helped to ensure that this Anglo-Saxon zone that we now call England became more connected to the continent rather than moving off in the opposite direction and following the track of Ireland and Wales and Scotland in that Celtic fringe. And it had immediate ramifications. For one thing, the royal government of Northumbria now required that all monasteries observe the Roman-style calendar and practice Roman-style tonsure. And this was a big humiliation to the old, long-established abbeys, such as Lindisfarne. And the monks at Lindisfarne could not accept this ruling, and so instead they packed up and took the relics of saints that they had in their possession and removed and retreated to Iona. So this was, this was really a turning point where the power and influence of Iona that had radiated out through the past hundred years was now shrinking and pulling back, and Britain was becoming part of this wider Latin early medieval world. So with the ruling at the Synod of Whitby, we really see the foundations laid for what we think of as England, as a medieval Catholic kingdom with a great deal in common with other Catholic kingdoms like France. But there are also certain distinctive British beliefs, customs, habits that really continue through, that you can see with roots back in the prehistoric age, the Roman, sub-Roman age, that then continue on up through the 600s and 700s and into the rest of the Middle Ages. And one of these really distinctive British habits, I would say, is the tremendous value placed upon literature and particularly poetry. This was a highly poetic society, it seems, both before and after the growth of literacy. As I said, there are many inscriptions in sophisticated metrical Latin verse all around England from the sub-Roman era, from this most mysterious dark period. There's also then an introduction and persistence and flourishing of Anglo-Saxon verse. It seems that these migrants who came in, although we see them as warlike, they also celebrated talent with poetry. Much Anglo-Saxon verse was then collected and anthologized over centuries in collections like the Exeter Book. And this Anglo-Saxon verse, it had its own styles and techniques. It tended to be alliterative. It created repetition through repeating beginning sounds rather than end rhyme. The earliest known poem in any language that could be called a form of English, you can loosely call it Old English, although as you'll hear, it's very, very different. The oldest surviving poem is Cadman's Hymn, which seems to have been written in the mid-600s 
at the monastery of Whitby, that same important monastery presided over by Hilda, which held the synod. This monastery had land holdings, like most monasteries did, and on that land there was a shepherd called Cadman. And his story is told briefly in Bede's Ecclesiastical Chronicle. And he says that Cadman was a shepherd at Whitby who would often join and be present at gatherings of monks when they would drink and sing. And this apparently was a common practice. People would pass around a harp, other instruments, and they would sing songs they knew or improvised. But these songs, unlike Latin hymns that you would hear in the chapel, these songs were mainly in Anglo-Saxon, this Germanic language that we can roughly call early English, the ancestor of English. And they were pagan. They talked often about pagan gods and heroes. And this apparently made Cadman uncomfortable. What do those songs have to do with God and Christ? He also reportedly was uncomfortable because he believed he couldn't sing. He had no talent with words or music. So he would always withdraw before the harp got to him, before it was his turn. And then one night after withdrawing and going on his own out to the barn, he had a vision. An angel came to him, and this angel gave him Christian praise verses, which were pious and orthodox, but in Anglo-Saxon, in his own tongue. So this suggests that Cadman was the first poet to compose poems or deliver poems that were Christian and Anglo-Saxon, to bring these two parts together. And if you look at this one single poem, which we just call Cadman's Hymn, that was reproduced in Bede's book, it's in very early English. It's one of the oldest early English documents you can find anywhere. And it is praise. It is praising God as a creator and a protector. But it has all kinds of Germanic elements, right? It's written in alliterative verse, like other Anglo-Saxon poems. And it uses all sorts of heroic epithets, describing the power and majesty of this god, much like you would talk about an epic hero. I'm going to recite the poem myself. I do not know Old English. (laughs) I am just basing this on recordings and things I've heard and read. But I'm going to recite it in the original, and then I'll read a sort of adjusted modern translation so you can see what it's saying. So in Anglo-Saxon, Nu shulan herian, he often riches word, meatodus mechta, and his modja thank. Werg wulder father, swa he wundra jewes, echidrichten or anstelda. He erest shop, yelda bianum, he often to hrofa, halich shippend. Vom midden yard, monkinis word, echidrichten, efter theoda, fiorum foldan, fre almichtig. So you can hear the repeating alliterative sounds, the M sounds, the F sounds, and the sort of halting up and down rhythm of it. Roughly in modern English, it says, Now we must praise the guardian of heaven the measurer's might and his mental power, the work of the wondrous Father, eternal Lord, that laid the foundation of every wonder. He first created for the children of men heaven as a roof, holy craftsman, then middle earth, the eternal Lord and guardian of men, fashioned last for earthly creatures, spirit almighty. 
And that last phrase, which can be translated as Lord or Spirit Almighty, in the original is Freya Almichtig. And that word Freya, you might recognize as the name of a Germanic goddess of love. And it seems that that name was just taken right over into Cadman's hymn and adapted as a word for God or protector. So in all kinds of ways, the ideas, the language, the imagery of the pre-Christian pagan belief system bled right over and was just put into this kind of hybrid mishmash that eventually evolved into British Christianity. Another famous surviving poem from a bit later, from probably the mid-700s, is called The Dream of the Rood, and that's rood, R-O-O-D, which can mean beam or pole, and also apparently was used to refer to the cross by these early Anglo-Saxon Christians. And The Dream of the Rood survives in later manuscripts from the Middle Ages, but we know that it must be from no later than the 8th century, both because of the language and because pieces of it, fragments of it, are found on the Ruthwell Cross, which is a monumental carved stone cross erected at Ruthwell in what's now Scotland, but was then Northumbria. And Celtic peoples for many centuries made stone monuments with images and carvings, and it seems that they just carried that over too, right into their version of Christianity, erecting these crosses. And the Ruthwell cross in particular has elaborate, detailed biblical scenes and also verses and prayers, including parts of the Dream of the Rood carved in runes on it. And the poem describes a dream. So the speaker is speaking of his or her dream in which the cross comes to life and speaks to them and tells the story of the crucifixion from the point of view of the cross itself, <laughs> which is an interesting trick. And the poetic style, again, also is alliterative with repeating beginning sounds rather than end rhyming. And in the poem, the cross recalls being a tree initially and then being felled and stripped down and fashioned into a crucifix, then being assembled and erected on the hill of Golgotha for evil, sinister purposes and then the cross describes seeing a young man approaching, and that little passage in modern English says, The young warrior stripped himself then, that was God Almighty, strong and firm of purpose. He climbed up onto the high gallows, magnificent in the sight of many. Then he wished to redeem mankind. I quaked when the warrior embraced me, yet I dared not bow to the ground, collapse to earthly regions, but I had to stand there firm. So the cross is describing here the, you know, the agony of having to be the instrument of this man's death, of God's death, at the same time as the excitement of being in contact with Christ. The poem describes Jesus like a mighty warrior who is not forced down and nailed to the cross, but who willingly climbs up as a kind of act of battle to defeat enemies and protect and redeem his followers. And this is very reminiscent, of course, of the Germanic warrior lord, the heroic lord who dies to protect his subjects. And later on, the poem actually describes the Christian followers as his warriors, almost like his tribal war band, like you would find in the Germanic forests. 
And also the idea of a tree, of a tree coming to life and speaking. It's vaguely animistic, and it recalls sacred trees in Germanic mythology, like Yggdrasil, the world tree. And the crucifixion, of course, itself echoes the story of Odin, the Norse legend of Odin, this supremely important god who dies and then revives while being fastened on the tree of life. So the dream of the rood you can see as not only transitional, like Cadman's hymn, but really as a fusion, calling together and fusing together Germanic and Christian elements and mythology. Then, of course, later there are surviving poetic epics like Beowulf. And Beowulf may have also been first composed in the 700s. It's reasonable to suppose that it was before the Viking attacks began. And then maybe it might have been adapted or expanded later. Earliest surviving manuscripts are from hundreds of years later, from around the year 1000. And it describes battle and contention between Danes and Frisians, between different Germanic groups. And I won't get into the details of Beowulf. That's a whole other massive story unto itself, obviously. But it shows how when people spoke about war and conquest at the time in the Dark Age, they weren't necessarily saying Anglo-Saxons attacking Celts, like later Britons might imagine it. They were often talking about different tribes, different Germanic tribes contending with one another. And they were talking also about Christianity and about how people came to be Christian and how they understood and spoke about Christianity in their Germanic languages. So there was this theme and this pattern of blending, of slow transition of customs and languages, the Germanic, the Celtic, the Christian, the Pictish also. It was not, it was not an age of ruptures. Although it was a tumultuous age, it was an age of change. It was not an age of replacements where one group or one way of life simply moved in and displaced the others. And the last theme that I want to talk about that really runs through this whole era and leaves a kind of imprint for all the rest of history is the obsession with waters. Britain is totally interwoven with waters and waterways. And there seems to have been, going back to prehistoric times, an obsession with sacred wells, fountains, baths. All of these were places of pilgrimage, places of offerings, and also increasingly river crossings as places of transition and, and contact between different worlds. All of these important monasteries were placed on, on islands like Iona and Lindisfarne or on points like Tintagel in the southwest, points of, of contact by sea. And this is reflected then in the legends and the stories, like the Arthur legends with Avalon, the sort of holy island where Arthur is finally laid to rest. Also, there seems to be this persistent and very peculiar custom of leaving weapons or tools in waterways. And this was not entirely unique to Britain. This seems to have happened in other places in Switzerland and Germany. People would go to sacred sites where there might be a shrine on a river confluence, and they would drop weapons, sometimes quite valuable and well-made weapons like swords, into the waterway. But this seems to have become particularly common and off the charts in certain parts of Britain. For instance, if you look at the fen lands, the sort of watery, marshy lands that used to exist around the Wash in Lincolnshire on the east coast of England, 
there were causeways and pathways through the fens and over these channels of water. And it seems that thousands upon thousands of weapons, which are still being constantly excavated and dug up, were brought there and dropped there. People seem to have come from far away, far and wide, in order to put swords, daggers, hammers, axes, and sometimes other tools into the water. We don't know why. It may have been a kind of offering, a propitiatory offering to gods or spirits connected to the water. And maybe it began as something you would do when you were taking a dangerous crossing, crossing a large river that could be risky, crossing a sea passage. You might drop in something of value in order to ensure a safe crossing. But from there, it seems to have kind of exploded and become an obsessive activity. If we look at that region today in Lincolnshire, there are abbeys built in that little zone and always built right at the site of where there used to be a causeway. So these crossings seem to have been holy places that then took over a Christian identity, and these abbeys maybe served or hosted these streams of pilgrims that were constantly coming and leaving objects in the water right from the Roman and sub-Roman age through the Middle Ages up to as late as the 14th century. It seems this practice continued. And again, we can't know exactly why or what it meant to the people who did it, but we can guess something from the fact that there seems to be a reflection of this practice, again, in the Arthur legends, in the story of the Lady of the Lake, where Arthur gains his authority, his kingship, from the sword Excalibur, given to him by the Lady of the Lake, some sort of spirit or goddess in the lake. And later, when he falls from power, he returns Excalibur to the lake. So maybe there was some sort of sense that authority, power, success derive in some way from the water and that the weapons that you use to signify, to symbolize your authority and place in the world belong in some way then to the waters and must be returned to the waters. So in this way, I think, you know, you see this this weird fusion of Christian and pre-Christian, maybe of Celtic and Germanic, the creation of these practices and systems that then kind of take on a life of their own and run through and shape life through all the rest of the Middle Ages in Britain. And this gives us, I guess, a, a little picture of how how medieval life was starting to come together in the 7th, 8th centuries, which then would be drastically tested and would come under dramatic attack when the Vikings started to show up. So I'm going to leave off there, and I hope that soon I'll produce an examination specifically of the Arthur legends, and then maybe I'll go on through medieval Britain after the arrival of the Vikings. And there are other topics, of course, on the docket, too. Some people have mentioned a history of policing, which is very much on people's minds, of course, at the moment. And maybe if I have time, I'll be able to work on those. But again, if you want to hear those, please become a patron. Get me up to my goal number of 75, and they will come out in a timely fashion. So thank you so much. I'll talk to you again soon.